0: You turn over to the book of Jude. Jude we're gonna be looking at verses five tonight, but we're gonna read verses five through seven and we'll we'll pray after we read our text. But just I just want to remind us that this this letter that Jude is wrote writing really looks at those who come against the truth of the Word of God. They pose a threat to these believers. That he's writing to. They propose a threat to churches everywhere, really. And ironically, it's not a threat from the outside. A lot of times churches think, oh, we've got to hunker down and protect our church from the world. No, this is actually something that's penetrating the church from the inside. Uh, it's not about attacks from the outside, it's attacks from inside the church. This is why it's so crucial. This is why it's such a. Uh, a serious little letter that he writes. <clears throat> and he, he wants to write about their common salvation, but he understands what's going on in their midst, and he realizes that um, this is a very destructive assault on the church, and a very destructive assault on, on the truth. And it's coming from those who profess to know the truth. In other words, this isn't coming from atheists. This isn't coming from people who don't have anything to do with religion. No, these are people that are actually in the church who profess to know the truth. And so there's a battle going on within the church. And sometimes we don't realize that. And sometimes we're too quick to affirm and too quick to uh, believe that, well, everybody in the church, they're all Christians. No, they're not. not even those that are a big part of the church sometimes are not and so we have to realize that you know we're we're defending from without but we also have to understand that there's a very important defense that's from those within the church and so it's really on two fronts you have the world constantly attacking christ we expect that they're constantly attacking the church we expect that But what's kind of a blind punch is when it comes from within the body of Christ, from the church, not the true church, obviously. And we're going to be talking about these people that crept in into the church. And there's always going to be an assault like that. It doesn't matter what kind of church you go to. It doesn't matter um, who the teacher is or whatever. There's always people who have crept into the church, And they're seeking to divide and they're seeking to assault the truth of the Word of God. And the Bible calls this, at least in one aspect, it calls it apostasy. Apostasy. When that happens, when people within the church, whether they're believers or not, it's irrelevant. They're they're fellowshipping, they're coming, they're, they're doing everything church people do. When they begin to attack the very truth that the church is professing and teaching and ho- holds dear to their heart, then that's called apostasy. It's, it's a departure from the faith among those who profess faith in Christ. Notice I said profess faith. <laughs> they don't possess faith. They, possess, they, prof- they profess it. They're saying they're Christians. Um. They maybe even know the truth. They, they've become aware of what the Bible says and they know how to speak the Christianese that everybody speaks when they come to church. <clears throat> they understand the lifestyle of people that go to church. Why? Because they, they're around them. So, for example, they know usually after the first or second Sunday, well, I probably shouldn't come to church with a cigarette in my mouth. Because when I look around, nobody's smoking cigarettes in church. I guess I'll I'll do that somewhere else. Or maybe they dumb down their language a little bit. Maybe their language is very salty uh, out in the world. But when they come to church, they realize, well, nobody talks like this here. I've changed my behavior, so I want to fit in. And the Bible says in the last days, um, and we certainly are in the last days. We've been in the last days since Christ's ascension, basically it says there will be apostasy. Look over um, a couple books to your left in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be covering this next year when we get into 2 Thessalonians. But Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3, Paul writes this. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, <clears throat> for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Uh, even Jesus predicted the end of the age that there would be a falling away from the faith, from those who who, supposedly hold the Christian faith. There will be a, a tremendous falling away. Uh, even John went into depth in his last three epistles about trying to discern true spiritual condition, trying to understand who is really a believer and who isn't, and how can we tell, and how can you can recognize spirits that are not from God, but rather that are, that are spirits of error, they are spirits of heresy, they're not spirits of truth, and so uh, apostasy, if you want a definition of apostasy, it's basically the denial of truth, it's the denial of truth, it's somebody saying, well, you know what, um, I'm a believer, but I don't believe this or I don't believe that or whatever, and it can be a denial for example of god's reality there's there's some people that deny the very true nature of God right in the world. It can start there um, you can be you can call yourself an atheist and deny god's real that's a form of of this. This word. Um, also, anyone who calls himself a Christian and denies the true nature of God has essentially defected from the truth. They've, they've warned off the path. In Second Timothy chapter three, verse five, Paul's telling Timothy, he says, he, he describes these people within his congregation. This is a young pastor he's counseling. And he says, you know what, there are those among you who hold a form, listen to this, a form of godliness. In other words, when you look at them, whoa, that's a godly person. (laughs) It's funny how the Bible tells us we shouldn't judge people that way. What does God look at? God looks at the heart, right? So just because somebody has a collar around their neck, or somebody has a suit and is standing up in front of you holding a Bible, that doesn't mean they're a godly person. There's people within the church that hold to a form of godliness. Second Timothy 3:5 says, "But they deny its power. They deny its power. They want you to belo- believe that they, they belong to the realm of those who are part of the true faith, but in reality, they've denied true godliness, and they've denied the faith and they've denied its power." Now they don't tell you that. How do you know that? Well, like last week, we looked at we know that because of their lifestyle. We know that because of the way they live their, quote, Christian life. So, they are, in fact, not at all lovers of God. And, and Paul, Paul writes that in that same passage. But they can also be, not just denial of the, the true nature of God, but they can be a denial of Christ. A denial of Christ. In other words, they attack the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Second Peter... Chapter 2, he says there, he he uses these words. He said, these are people who deny the Master or the Lord who bought them. They have a defective understanding of who Christ is. You know, if you can't give me a definition of who Jesus Christ is, how can you be a believer? How can you be a Christian if you don't know who Christ is? Uh, it can be a denial even of the coming of Christ, as we've seen in our studies in First Thessalonians on Sundays. Some of them, those people thought, "Oh, you know, Christ already came and it's all over, right?" And they were worried about their believers who died, and are they going to miss the rapture? Are they going to miss the day of the Lord? What's going to happen here? And there was a heresy going around that you know all that stuff already happened, and so some people deny the coming of Christ. Second um, Peter. Uh, Three uh, basically calls those people scoffers or mockers who say, where is the promise of his coming? Oh, you've been saying he's coming for where is he? Where is he? So you have a denial of the person of God, you have a denial of the work and the return of Christ, and that all constitutes a form of, of apostasy that exists sometimes in churches. And it can be a denial of the Christian faith at any point, really. I mean, they just gave you some examples. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. A couple pages to your left. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Because Paul, he warns us here, too, of these same folks. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse uh, 1 says now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith how by devoting themselves listen to this to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared and here's some of the 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 mistruths that they come up with. Verse 3, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. This isn't talking about being a carnivore or a vegan or anything like that. It's not talking about that. It's talking about people that are kind of bringing up some of the, uh, the, the law and saying, oh, you you know, you shouldn't marry because if you're not married, then you can be more holy because you're more devoted to God. Well, there is some truth in that, but they were carrying it to an extent. I was blown away when I read that verse. I remember right after I got saved because I I got saved out of the Catholic Church. And I thought, whoa, it's talking about the Catholic Church. Well, not really, but it, it is in a way. You can apply it there. Okay. And that hasn't worked out for them very well, forbidding marriage for their priests. Um, they've had major problems with that. And requiring abstinence from foods, and this is, goes to the, the, the truth of the matter, God created food, animals, vegetables, all this stuff to be enjoyed, w- received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then it says in verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Okay, so, you know, he's, he's saying that in the latter times, there's going to be people that are departing from the faith because they're going to be devoting themselves to deceitful teachers. If you want to know what a deceitful teacher looks at, just turn on TBN on your channel. You know, usually my, probably 85% of the people on there are, are just there to bilk you out of your money. They're deceitful. Um, so it may be an attack on God. It may be an attack on Christ. Uh, it may be an attack on the gospel or the way of salvation. Uh, and what happens in, the, in its place comes these doctrines of demons it talks about, produced by deceitful spirits. And... Um, it's it's basically apostasy is to be understood as the denial of sound doctrine of what we find in the scriptures. Whenever you have somebody coming up with a new truth, oh, you know, God, I have a brand new doctrine I want to teach you. Beware, beware. Second Timothy chapter four, verses um, three and four. Look at it says they won't endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, in other words, they want their ears to be tickled. They want their ears to be scratched. They want to hear something that makes their belly warm. That just, oh, that's so nice. It says, wanting to have that, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who, to suit their own passions. I mean, this is what we have today. We have churches that are filled with people that go to that church because that teacher suits their own passions. There's people that don't go to certain churches because, well, that person doesn't suit their passions. You know, he's always yelling or, or he doesn't ever talk about love or, or this or that, or, or they'll say whatever. And it, it's on both sides, really. And I think we have to get away from the whole idea of shopping for the perfect church because it's going to be a long, drawn-out shopping time for you because you're not going to find it. You're not going to ever find a perfect church. Okay. Um, So you have to stop and you have to say, well, what kind of church would I look for? What would I, what would I look for in a church? And a lot of times, unfortunately, because we're very felt need oriented, we're looking for things that suit our own passions I mean, you know, if I have a young family, and, and I'm young, and, and I have two babies, well, I, wanna, I want a church that has a nursery. If I have teenagers, I want a church that has a youth group. If I have older parents, and they're going to come to church, well, I want a church that has a, a seniors ministry. And that's how we shop for churches. And frankly, that's silly. That's wrong. You know, the the sole purpose in coming to church is what? Not to have your own passion stroked, but to understand and to learn and to be taught the word of God. Well, these people are just going because they want want to hear something that they like. They want to see something that they like, something that meets their needs. Verse 4, it says, here's the result, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, okay, and they will wander off into myths. And sometimes when you go to certain churches, and you, and you, you, you I've looked at them on the internet because I can't go very much, but when I've looked at these live streams from churches, you think, wow, the name denotes kind of a sense of of soundness and maybe even reformed belief. And, and so you, you watch their live stream, and it's like, what are they doing? It's bizarre sometimes. It's really bizarre. And so... They've, they've, they've put the truth aside, and they're just kind of doing their own thing. Um, look at what 2 Timothy chapter 3, one, one chapter back, verses 1 to 7 says. Remember, this is all, this is all stuff, this, this shouldn't surprise us. What Jude is telling us shouldn't surprise us. We should say, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. We see this everywhere. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 Paul writes this, but understand this, that in the last days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty. Okay, we, we just went through the whole tribulation time, all that stuff. That's going to be a difficult time for people. I mean, when the rapture happens and all the Christians are gone, that's going to be a difficult time for people who are left. But it, it says here, verse 2, for people will be, and it describes how people will be during this time, lovers of self, lovers of money. I mean, I kind of went through those lists, and I went, check, 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 check. It's like looking at the news, right? Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. I mean, look at what's going on in our society. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, verse 5, having, look, here it is, the appearance of godliness. This isn't talking about people that are out at some cult worshiping Satan. These are people that look godly. They have an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And what does Paul tell Timothy? Avoid such people. Have nothing to do with them. You say, well, that sounds kind of harsh. It is harsh. It's meant to be harsh. The problem with our churches today is we've avoided this command to avoid such people. And we've done just the opposite. What do we do? We embrace them. (laughs) If we just love them more, maybe they'll come to Jesus. Just love them more. You know, we don't want to talk about their infidelity and their adultery and their drug abuse and their alcohol. We don't want to do all that because that would be offensive to them and we want them to come back to our church. So, you know, we're not going to avoid them. We want to embrace them. As a matter of fact, let's take our Sunday mornings and we'll make it all about unbelievers. So that the unbelievers feel comfortable here. So that they'll come back week after week after week and eventually, maybe, hopefully, prayerfully, they'll come to know Christ. And I've talked to several people who've gone to churches that do just that. It's a big show every Sunday to attract unbelievers so they can kind of do a bait and switch and and thinking somehow that's commendable because they have a heart for evangelism. I've talked to people that have gotten saved in those churches. You know what they do? After they're legitimately saved, they leave. (laughs) Why? Because they're not being taught. It's all about evangelism. It's all about the unbelievers. It's all about this. And they're going, I'm not growing. There must be something more. And I bet if we went around the room, some of you have gone through that. Well, the Bible says you need to avoid these people. Now, does that affect our evangelism? No. I'm not saying... You know, you you never have anything to do with unbelievers. We're we're called to be salt. We're called to be light in this world. We have to have compassion for those that don't know Christ, and whenever possible, we should be preaching the gospel to those lost souls so that they can see the glory of Christ, so they can see His love for them and His free gift of salvation and His forgiveness that will cover all their sins—not just what they're doing right now, but what they did in the past, what they did now, and what they did in the future. It will all be covered under the sacrifice of Christ. You have to have contact with unbelievers in order to share that message. But you don't have to embrace them in the church. This is why when you go through the membership's class here at our church, we don't just say, "Okay, yeah, now you're a member." No. We want to hear your testimony. We want to know where you want to serve. We want to know how God wants to use you in our midst. It's not just about putting your name on a a list. It's it's about understanding why are you here with us? Can you tell us? Because we really want to know. Not in a nosy way. We welcome you. That's great. But we want to know how God is going to use you in our midst. And then it says in verse 6 there in 2 Timothy 3, he says, For among them, among these people that you're supposed to avoid, (laughs) so they weren't avoiding them, they were welcoming them in. Look at what it says, for among them are those who creep into households. I just think that's so interesting, because back in Jude, last week, we looked at verse 4, and it says, for certain people have crept in to the church unnoticed. They crept in, and it uses this same idea here. But here they're not going to the church, they're going into households and they're, they're capturing weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. You know, sometimes people need to just kind of settle down and focus on the Word of God as believers. Because it's so easy To get out there and and before you know it you're reading every book that's come down the pike you're you're all over the place watching different people different podcasts different this this and your mind is just filled with all this stuff but you're neglecting the Word of God okay and and we need to stop that and we need to come back and understand because here it says you're learning you can learn that through that process But you're never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because you never really stay long enough in one area to understand what it says. It's like people that just pluck verses out. You know, they go, Oh, you know, this verse is kind of cool. I read this the other day. And then they go over here and, What's this verse say? You know, that's a dangerous way to read the Bible, my friend. It's really weird. Would you read your mail that way? If you got a letter from an uncle, would you open it up and go, Oh, what's he say here? Oh, oh, he says... Hey, uh, pray for me. Well, what's, i don't going to read that. Let's see. Oh, over here, he's, you wouldn't read a letter that way. You would say you're nuts if you did that, right? You wouldn't understand the context. And that's the way the Bible is written. The Bible is, is God's letter to us. And so we have to understand it historically, contextually. We can't just be pulling verses out or we're going to be like these people who are always learning, but they're never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So this apostasy, this denial of the true God, the true Christ, the true gospel, the true faith, whatever it might be, it shows up. They may have a form of godliness, but if you look at them long enough, you can see where it shows up. And we talked about this last week. It shows up in their lifestyle. It shows up in their morals. And remember last week, we looked at the idea of when, when Jude was talking about these these uh, false teachers and how he was um, wanting them to understand that, you know what, these people have crept in and they, they're right alongside you and you don't even know it. And we, we talked about these people um, back in, in Jude uh, verse 4 when it says that they, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And then it says, ungodly people. Ungodly people. And we talked about how that's kind of a, uh, a makeup of, of the two words. It basically means amoral. There's no morals there. And if you want to spot these people, you have to get to know them well enough to where you can say, yeah, there's something off there. Okay, um, And it, it, it's very important that we understand that. And so, Jude here, in verse 5 to 7, is addressing this. He, he gave us the purpose that he wrote it in verse 3. He talked about the problem that required him to write such a letter. The idea that these people, these ungodly people, are sneaking in. Um, some people, uh, I can't remember who it was, somebody asked me last week, hey, do you think that these certain people who crept into the church are believers or unbelievers? That was the question. I believe they're unbelievers, and I, I think I can show you that tonight. They're, well, first of all, they're called ungodly persons, right? That's kind of a hint. Okay. Um, But look down, if you doubt me, look down at verse 19. Jude, back to Jude, sorry, back to Jude verse 19. This kind of seals their fate in my mind. It says in verse 19 of Jude, talking about these people, the same people that creep in, it is these who cause, what, divisions, worldly people, and then it says this at the end, what, devoid of the spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God. What does Paul say in Romans 8, 9? He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So Paul is basically making an assumption that the people he's writing to in Rome are believers, but he also says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says this, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ guess what, does not belong to him. You can't be a Christian without the Spirit of God. You can't have a believer who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, who is devoid of the Spirit. And so what is, is, is Jude doing here in these, in these verses 5 to 7? He's basically dialing down on his condemnation that he just talked about in the previous verses, Verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. What condemnation? It's a condemnation that, that Jude is talking about. And so he uses here illustrations, you were, if you were to say, illustrations or examples of how God judges other situations of apostasy in Scripture. And he basically brings up three. He talks about the nation of Israel and its apostasy. He talks about angels, supernatural beings, and their apostasy. And he also talks about Gentiles in their apostasy. So look at the text, verses 5 to 7. We're not going to get through all this tonight. And I told you when we started this book, it's a small book. But trust me, there's a lot of stuff in here. And and some of it's very technical, okay? So you kind of kind of take the time to understand it and dial down on it, and that's what we're going to try to do. But look at verse 5. Jude says, now, I want to remind you, okay? After he went through his whole thing here and introduced himself and did all that, talked about why he wrote it and the purpose of it and the problem. And then he says, I want to remind you, when someone says that, basically they're, they're implying that you what? Or you forgot something, right? You either knew it before and you forgot it, but I want to remind you about this. Okay? Sometimes Chelly will say, hey, uh, Pastor, I want to remind you on Friday, you got this appointment with this person. Good. Thank you. Okay? Um, I kind of knew that information, but it was brought to my forefront by that reminder. He says, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, verse 5, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Stop there a second. There's different translations and different references to this word that is translated Jesus here. Some translate it Lord. Okay, some translate it it Jesus, and I'm not going to get into all the technical ramifications of that. Um, The way I'm looking at it is Jesus is God and the Lord is God, and okay, we're not going to get into all the dialed down on the different you know, transcripts and all that stuff. Um, So whether you want to say Lord or Jesus, it it was God who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Let's say that. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. So he gives this illustration to them. He's like, hey, you know what? Um, If you want an illustration of this condemnation, if you want an illustration how God has dealt with these people who are creeping into your church, that you're cozying up with, that you think it's fine to link arms with, Well, here's what he did, and so he gives these illustrations, and the first one is those, the exodus. He talks about the people coming out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and then he gives the illustration of angels in verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, it says, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And we're going to get into all that, but not tonight. And then the the third illustration he gives is basically of, of the Gentiles. He says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example, right, um, Someone asked me one time, why does God always judge all these people? Why does God do all this horrible stuff? Sometimes it's an example for us. This is the case here. As an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray and then we'll continue. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we do pray that you would open our hearts to this first illustration of the Exodus and and how Jude brought this up. And, and hopefully it was encouraging to them. But Lord, we pray that you would just open our eyes and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2 because there's an amazing <laughs> set of verses here. It's almost like you're reading the same book. It's almost like you're reading the same, the same verses that Jude wrote. And remember I said 2 Peter and Jude are very similar in their literary style and everything. But in 2 in Peter chapter th- 2, Chapter 2, verse 3. Now, if you compare this with what we just read, you're going to say, wow, it sounds very similar. Listen to what he says in verse 3, 2 Peter 2.3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 2, and many, listen to this, will follow their sensuality. That's the same word that basically we saw uh, last week at the end of, of verse 4. It says the great, they, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. All right. And so here it's brought up again. It says many will follow their sensuality in other words, they don't have any morals. That's basically what that word means. Remember, it's made up of two words. Ah, and Selge, I think it is. And Selge was re- referenced to a, a Stoic city over in this area. And the Stoics were very moral people. Very moral. I mean, if you're a Roman soldier, you would never go to a Stoic city because it was very boring. They had a curfew. There was no alcohol. There was no prostitution. Nothing. You had nothing to do. For these soldiers so they would avoid it well this word is in other words no morality that's what sensuality is and he says because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed verse 3 and in their greed it's amazing to me how many times the bible ties greed and money with false teaching it's amazing and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. In other words, they're going to tell you things, like Timothy or Paul told Timothy, that they're going to tickle their ears. And it's going to keep them coming back. It's going to come back. But it's it's all it's all an exploitation because their words are false, because they're not based upon the truth. And it says their condemnation from long ago is not idle, similar to what Jude said and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, they will get theirs, basically. Verse 4, he begins to give some illustrations here, and the first one is angels. He says, for God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So that's a similar illustration that Jude just gave us. And then in verse 5 he says, And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he, he brings the Noahic flood up as an illustration that Jude didn't bring up. He could have brought it up, but he didn't. <coughs> and then in, in verse 6 he says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, well, Jude brought those up, to ashes, he, con- he condemned them to extinction, making them an example, there's that word of Gant, of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he had saw and heard. That verse, just kind of this week, when I was looking at this verse, particularly verse 8, when it says that righteous Lot, this man, this righteous man, living among all these wicked people, he lived among them day after day after day. I mean, we can kind of relate to that, living here in the Bay Area. (laughs) I mean, that's what it is, right? It's like Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. I mean, we, we live in a very unrighteous area of the country. They call this peninsula the Dark Corridor because less than like 3% of the population go to any church. That's including Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses. Anybody else you want to throw in there? They don't go to church. And if you don't believe me, just try to walk around your neighborhood and start knocking on day doors and say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? And you'll see, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. People don't want to hear it. They'll slam the door right in your face. But I'm thinking here, here's Lot living in this wickedness, and it says he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. And I thought, boy, if the church could just see that. What do we do? A lot of times we're running to these lawless deeds. We're, we're running into areas of righteous, unrighteousness as believers in forms of entertainment, in forms of other things. We're not, it's not tormenting our soul. We're thinking, oh, well, it's just a harmless movie. It's just a silly whatever, you know. Well, it, it, it grieves the heart of God. And it should grieve our hearts. And we're all guilty of this. I'm not, you know, putting myself above anybody else. I mean, but I'm just saying we have to be aware of that. And then it says in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So there there is no remorse in their blasphemy. They're, They're very bold about it. We see that here. And here's what he's saying. Peter wrote about this judgment falling on fallen angels. He wrote about it falling on the unbelievers back in Noah's time through the flood. And he also wrote about this gross wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah. He gives those illustrations. Well, Jude pretty much gave the same message. And so these are, are three illustrations of Jews, angels, and Gentiles. And in each case, there's destruction. In each case, there's judgment. And in each case, there's, there's punishment of et- eternal fire, basically. It's not a laughing matter. <clears throat> and it, 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 it illustrates for us, I believe, <clears throat> the importance of keeping Christ's church pure, of keeping Christ's church holy, of making sure that we are avoiding people that we should be avoiding, that we're not embracing them. It doesn't mean we don't love them. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the church is the church. The problem today is we have what some call the visible church, right? The building. And people go to the building and and there's a bunch of people over there. and Oh, we're all part of the church. No, we're not. Because there's an invisible church for those that know Christ. And it's vastly different than the visible church. It shouldn't be, but it is. And so we need to be on our toes. We need to have our ears perked up. You know, when people start talking about certain things, we need to understand, well, what does the Bible say about that? This person's telling me this, what does Scripture say? Not what the pastor says, not what the elders say. What does the Bible say? Because until you understand what the Bible says, you don't don't have a a baseline for anything. Because I could get up every Sunday and lie to you all day long. And slip in little mistruths here and little mistruths there. And you'd probably never even have an idea that I was doing it if I was that kind of a person. It happens all the time not here hopefully but in churches it does and these people are not innocent and so these illustrations of God's inevitable judgment on apostasy are there and there's a warning here that Jude wants us to hear in our heart of hearts and he's made it very clear and and the warning is this hey folks there's a hell and it's going to be forever forever And it's a burning place, the Bible says, of horrific torment. You don't want the worst person in the world, the worst enemy that you have to be in hell. If you understand truly what hell is. But there's a warning here that you will end up there if you turn away from the truth that is given to you. If you turn away from God's truth. And you know what? The more you know, the more you know about the gospel, the more you know about the Christian faith, guess what? I honestly believe the hotter your hell will be if you reject it. Because there's not going to be any excuse. There's not going to be any excuse. It's better that you never hear the gospel than to have heard the gospel and reject it. It's better that you were never taught the Bible rather than having been taught the Bible and say, ah, I don't want it, and walk away. You don't want to be in that position. And so he points out here, first of all, the proof of his claim, and we'll just cover this first one quickly. The Israeli apostates, verse 5 talking about these people who were saved out of the land of Egypt. We call that the Exodus, right? Well, we see here Jude's desire, first of all, to remind them not to forget the warning in the Old Testament, because it's easy to forget things. We forget things all the time. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about this in verse 11, talking about things that happened in the Old Testament and why they happened the way they happened. He says in verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And then he says in verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, don't, don't think too much of yourself. Don't buy into the, adi- in the, into the idea, well, you know, I, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and I, you know, I would never do it. No, don't buy into that. Don't buy into that. Be on guard. Don't think you're going to stand, and then you end up falling on your face. Verse 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you're not dealing with anything new. This stuff has been going on since creation okay he says god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability he's talking here to believers but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it the problem is as believers (coughs) And what was happening even in Jude's day was because of their salvation <clears throat> and because God talked to them, um, it, you know, they heard the gospel and they were able to understand that, you know what, we're, we're saved, uh, all of our, our sins are forgiven, all this stuff is, is under the bridge. Well, now I can just go do whatever I want. It's, the morality thing's not a big deal anyway because, you know, Even though it displeases God, it's covered by Jesus' blood, so I can go sin and and do whatever I want. No. No, you can't. And this is what what Jude is trying to relate to this church. He says you're you're linking arms with people who have crept in, and, and they don't have your best interest at heart. And it talks here, first of all, about Israel's deliverance. It shows how unbelievers are among God's people. Um, And this is kind of where I want to spend some time tonight, because it's very important that we understand this. I know I was taught this, and I know a lot of people were taught this, and a lot of times as Christians, here's how we look look at Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. Remember, they were there, and God delivered them out, and they were to go to the, the promised land. And we look at that, that whole scenario and we take the exodus from Egypt and remember the Passover lamb and the blood that was shed. And, and what do we do? We liken that and we, we do so properly, I think. It's a picture of redemption. That's true. That the Lord Jesus Christ sets us free through his blood, through his sacrifice on Calvary. It covers our sins. The Passover was a, a type of that. The only problem is this. The Passover was for the entire nation of Israel. It was for the whole nation. But it did not guarantee that the entire nation believed. Very important you understand this. The history of Israel in the wilderness shows us That, in fact, there were many in Israel who did not believe. They did not believe. As a matter of fact, the Bible says they died in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, they were judged by God because of their unbelief. Just because they were Israeli didn't give them a special pass. Many of them who went into the land of Canaan we were simply the children of those who came out of the land of Egypt because everybody else was dead. <laughs> These people who came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. They were unbelievers. And it was their children who went into the land of Canaan under Joshua and Caleb. And, and, and there was the only two that really believed God concerning this along with Moses, that God was actually going to provide them a path to Canaan. These people died in the wilderness in unbelief. And today in the church you hear this. You know, a lot of people say, well, they were were Christians. They just simply died a physical death. Um, Others say, no, they were unbelievers. These people were unbelievers. And I think the Bible is very clear. And the Bible says that they were unbelievers multiple times. And they were not part of the messianic hope that the Bible speaks of. Matter of fact, it even says 10 times those Jews who were really filled with, they were infiltrated by Egypt because of their time there, the ones who came out of Egypt, 10 times the Bible, it, it proved that they did not believe God. They were unbelievers, even though they were part of, na- of the nation of Israel. They refused to believe it. And as a result, they were, they were judged by God. And. What happened? Well, God destroyed them. God's destruction of these unbelievers is, should be an example to us. Um, three points there. There's a danger of unbelief. The danger of unbelief. When you hear the truth, either you're going to affirm the truth or you're going to deny the truth. Either you're going to say, I don't want to hear it, or you're going to believe it. Either it's going to be a source of hope and a source of joy and a source of forgiveness for you. Or it could definitely be a source of torment. because <laughs> when re- you reject God's truth, there's always consequences. always. There's a real danger there. And a lot of times today in the church, We just believe everybody's a believer. There's a danger in that. Because remember, there are these people who crept in. They don't have our best will at heart. They've crept in. And so we we have to make them aware of this. And then secondly, the judgment of God. What's that saying? It's basically saying to the nation of Israel and even to the church, you know what? You can't just continue to sin and get along with get away with it. It's not going to happen. God will hold you accountable at some point in time. And thirdly, the patience of God. When you look at what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt, when you look at what went on, um, you see God's patience with them over and over and over and over again. God tolerated their unbelief. Over and over and over again. The Jews who came out of Egypt were not saved. They aren't believing Jews. Even though they came out of Egypt, you could say, well, I thought, well, since they came out of Egypt, doesn't that mean they were all redeemed? No, they weren't. This is my point. Let me remind you, once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, and he would basically offer blood of a sacrificed animal on the mercy seat. And we call that the day of what? Atonement, right? Yom Kippur. Now, just because he did that once a year, it did not mean that every Jew in Israel was saved because he did that. It didn't mean that. What did he do? He propitiated. The propitiation is the satisfying the righteous wrath of God. God demands sacrifice for sin. So this high priest would go in once a year, and the blood was shed once a year, and yet the whole nation for that year, God's wrath was satisfied. They weren't saved, it just kind of held off the inevitable. God's wrath was satisfied for that time period. The whole nation was propitiated. The wrath of God was appeased. But the the Bible's very clear that each individual Israelite if he had ref- if he refused to bring his own sacrifice for his own sin to the temple, guess what? He was cut off forever. They didn't say, "Oh, the high priest got you covered." No, <laughs> didn't work that way. You still had responsibility as an Israel citizen to take your sacrifice to the temple. And if you didn't do it, you're gone. So don't get the idea that simply because the whole nation had come out of Egypt that they all were saved. Because they weren't all believers in the Messianic hope. And we see evidences of this unbelief throughout all their wilderness wanderings. Just read about it. Over and over again, God is constantly on them. Now, a lot of times we have a problem with this because many of us have been taught that this picture of coming out of Egypt is getting saved. Have you ever heard that? People make that kind of direct correlation. Yeah, you got to get out of Egypt. That's a picture of, you know, it is a picture. It's a type. And then they say wandering in the wilderness is, is that, that, that guy who's saved, but he's a carnal Christian. So he's just out there doing his own thing, living in sin, but he's still a Christian because he's not in Egypt. He's come out. And then eventually they're going to get to Canaan. They're going to get to victory. Now, there is a symbol, there's a type, but the Bible makes it very clear. Many of these Jews died because of their unbelief. So there very much is an example of God affirming that a mixed among the believers were unbelievers. In, in Numbers, look at Numbers chapter 14, all the way in the Old Testament, Numbers 14. And we'll close. One time is it, we'll close with this. Numbers 14, look at verse 20. And this is God speaking to all these people. He says, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, verse 21, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test ten times that's where I got the ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers ok they haven't obeyed it none of these men are going to see it and, and none of those who despise me shall see it it says in verse the end of verse 23 but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring him into the land which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? doesn't sound like a a believing group of folks. I have heard their grumblings of these people of Israel. They grumbled against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upwards who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunah and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said uh, would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness according to the number of days in which you spied out the land 40 days you wonder why they were in the the desert 40 years it tells us right there because they didn't listen to the spies who poured out the land spied out the land for 40 days a a year for each day that's why they spent 40 days marching around in the desert you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure i the lord have spoken Verse thirty five, surely this will I do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they have they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And in Hebrews, it recounts a similar thing. It says in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Hebrews, remember, this is written to Jewish people, so they totally understood what the writer was talking about. In verse 16, Hebrews 3:16, he says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom... Was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief verse 1 of chapter 4 says therefore while this promise of entering his rest still stands let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it for good news came to us just as to them but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened but we who have believed enter that rest as he has said so he has this illustration from this exodus out of Egypt as a reminder back to Jude to these Christians that there are certain people who crept in among them, and their lifestyles, when you look at them, they prove to them that they're all moral, that they're not believers. And yet the Christians have let them come in based upon a mere profession. And the Christians are now tolerating them. And God is warning the church. He's warning these Christians. He's reminding, hey, look at what happened in the Old Testament when people did this kind of stuff. It's very important that we realize the Bible is God's truth to us. Now, last point, man's debt to God was paid in full by Jesus. And I pulled out a couple verses here that sometimes are hard to understand and people take them out of context and they use them to teach kind of universal salvation, everybody's going to be saved. One is 1 John 2.2 where it says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, he satisfies the wrath of God, that's what that word propitiation means. It's a satisfaction. It's an appeasement. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice. That's how we're saved. And he appeases God's holy wrath against the believer's sins. But look at what it says. It says, and not for ours only, the apostle's words here, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And people use that and say, oh, that means everybody's going to get saved. It can't mean that. If it meant everyone was going to get saved, then why does God talk so much about hell? Because there'd be no means, there'd be no reason to have a hell if everyone was going to be saved. So it can't mean that everyone's going to be saved. Christ provides this, what they say is, well, Christ provides a potential salvation. His death provides a potential salvation. And we reject that teaching because we believe that when Christ died, he died a very specific death. He didn't die a general death. He died for your sin. That's very specific. He couldn't have died for everyone in the whole world because if he did, then everyone in the whole world would have their what? Their sins forgiven so it's not a it's not a potential salvation it's a realized salvation when you come to terms with your own sin and you realize that christ is the only way for me to be saved that he's the only one that hung on a cross that was a perfect sacrifice that met god's requirements for that sacrifice to be made. This idea of this whole world, it has to be comprehended as this generic expression that refers to humanity through the whole earth, but not necessarily to every individual. Just like in Israel, when the high priest would sacrifice for the whole nation, it didn't mean every individual was saved. They still had to do their due diligence before the Lord. Through the Savior's death, intrinsically, it had infinite value. It was designed to actually, not potentially, but actually secure and satisfy God's wrath and provide divine justice on behalf of those who would believe. And the other verse that I'll just read, 1 Timothy 4:10, it says, "For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God." And then it says this, "who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe." I mean, is is Christ the savior of all people? He's the only savior there is, folks. He's the only savior You benefit from him being the savior when you believe in him for salvation. It benefits you directly. All of your sins are forgiven. You're freed from the burden of sin. You're restored to your rightful place with God in relationship and fellowship. But he is the the savior of all men in a temporal sense. But he's definitely the savior of believers in a spiritual sense, and even in an eternal sense. He will be our Savior forever. Because he delivers us from sin's penalty forever. Not just for a temporary basis. And so, next week we'll look at these angels, or not next week, actually next week we will not be meeting, but the week after that we'll look at these angels and see what the story is with them. And like I said, it's a couple words in Jude, but the implications of what we're learning and what we're understanding is, is kind of deep. So we have to take our time to, to thread our way through these things. So, well, let's close in a word of prayer and then we can enjoy some fellowship with each other. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that um, you've given us a, a church to meet in. And, and Lord, we thank you for each each person that comes here, Lord, um, we we welcome all, we really do, but at the same time, we have to be, we have to practice some discernment. Um, we we want to be careful who we actually are embracing and where where they're coming from, because there are forces out there that want to infiltrate the church. They want to cause division. They want to cause destruction. They want to They want to lead people away from the truth into even areas of myths, fables. And Lord, as a pastor, I can't do due diligence and watch everything. Ken can't do this. It's, It's really left up to us as believers, as members, and as people who attend this church to be on the lookout. Not to be suspicious of people. We're not saying that but when someone says something especially in the area of theology or doctrine we should be able to go to the bible and say oh yeah this makes sense not like where did you get that from we just want to be students of your word we want to be people who who don't trust the person necessarily in the pulpit but but trust you as the author of your word because we're all open to to speak myth- mistruths at times, even by mistake. And Lord, it's it's great to be part of a church that, where we have a lot of Bereans here that they don't just listen to a sermon every week, but they actually check it out in the Bible to see if whoever's preaching and what they're saying lines up with your word because really your word is the ultimate truth. It's the baseline of everything we believe. And so we accept it by faith. And Lord, we pray for... For all who are here, Lord, and for those who may not know you, we pray that you would move in their hearts that they could cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, that you would save them from their sin, that you would help them to understand their need of a Savior, and Lord, that you would restore uh, that fellowship through Christ with their Creator. And so, Lord, we thank you. We pray for um, upcoming uh, Thanksgiving time, and I'm sure many of us will be spending time with family and friends. And and Lord, we just pray that you would, if we're traveling, be watching over us and bring us back safely. And uh, just uh, bless our fellowship as we enter this holiday season of Thanksgiving and then Christmas. It goes so fast every year, but Lord, it's, it's just a joyful time of year. And so, Lord, we thank you for our church and pray you continue to bless it. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.